From the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas, I'm Christopher Calloway, your host of Creator Talks, the interview show for comic book aficionados. My interview guest is Bertie Willis. Bertie is a queer, non-binary comic book writer best known for writing the five-issue miniseries Over the Garden Wall, Soulful Symphonies, published through Boom Studios. Bertie's latest work is also published through Boom, seeing Rachel Carson. Rachel Carson was the author of the book Silent Spring, published in 1962. She fought against the environmental crisis through her books, which ultimately led to the creation of the EPA. So we're going to learn about this graphic novel that Bertie has written, what Rachel's story means to Bertie, and how an appreciation of nature is reflected in Bertie's writing. The Boom Scene series tells the true stories in graphic format of marginalized trailblazers and pivotal historical figures. The first book in the Scene series was the true story of sculptor Edmonia Lewis. And now the spotlight is on Rachel Carson. So I discuss with Bertie how we can become more aware of marginalized and subsets of society. Bertie shares thoughts on that subject and how it is possible based on personal experience to reach an understanding with those closest to us. It comes down to one thing that you'll learn about in our interview. Now, like your host, Bertie has made a big move geographically, and we begin our conversation talking about that move from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Portland, Maine. All this and the fun questions I ask all my guests when we kick back with the creator. So please join me in welcoming Bertie Willis, author of Scene, Rachel Carson, here now on Creator Talks. Bertie, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you. And congratulations on moving to Maine. What was the reason for the move to Maine? We kind of wanted to live in an area with fresher air. Pittsburgh was pretty dirty. Um, It's a lovely city, but after you get out of being there, you realize how grimy the air still is. Uh, Out here in Maine, it's just beautiful and fresh. And we wanted somewhere with just access to the outdoors. And my wife really loves the ocean. And uh, I thought, well, you know, I love snow. She loves the ocean. Great compromise. (laughs) So that's probably what you like best about Maine is the fresh air, being close to the water if you want to be. What will you miss about Pittsburgh? Probably the city aspect of it. There was, you know, a lot to do because it was a big city. But also, I don't really feel like I'm giving up much being here in Portland. I'm not really like a person to go out and do nightlife. With COVID, it's not like we're going to any plays or anything like that anytime soon. So I'm not really missing much in that regard. Uh, I will miss kind of the community. And oddly enough, my neighbor, my neighbor and her wife and her family who were kind of amazing and ran the local newspaper. So any info I needed, I just went right over the fence and was like, hey, what's the scoop? So I <laughs> <missed> that. <laughs> I've been to Portland once for a day. Mm-hmm. So I think you had a chance to see a lot of it. What do you like about Portland besides being close to the water? The area we're in right now is really close to Back Bay. It's literally right behind us. So there's this really beautiful walking trail. And I mean, the water's right there. Uh, Portland, it's this beautiful sort of quaint downtown. The best way I can describe it is kind of like Seattle light. It has just that sort of Seattle vibe, but is just very calm and quiet, even prior to COVID, we came down here at the end of February, beginning of March, before everything kind of got wild and crazy. I don't know, it was just very relaxed. Everyone is very friendly, very easygoing. There's not a lot of traffic, which is awesome. (laughs) I don't 
know, it's just a really pretty city and everyone here is just, like I said, so extremely friendly. You just, you know, you feel good walking around and it's, as far as a big city goes, it's just really walkable. It's really easy to walk around to get anywhere. So it's incredibly convenient. Yeah, I don't know. I just can't say good enough things about it. Those of us who have moved, and I have, as my listeners know, from Delaware to Las Vegas, your life gets thrown in the pods. But the house search takes a while. Selling your house takes a while. I understand your initial house that you looked at didn't work out. Yeah, it didn't. But, you know, that was okay. Because we were selling our house in Pittsburgh. It took longer than we had expected anyway. It was a really interesting confluence of events because we owned a beautiful 1920s home that had all of the original hardwood floors in it. And, I mean, the house had gently settled over the years. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful construction, really well done. And um, there was a small hump in the floor because of the way the house had settled, but it was totally solid. And, you know, we'd had a structural engineer come and look at it. And uh, it was interesting because a lot of people were like, I just don't know if I like that. Love the big, beautiful modern kitchen, but I just don't know if I can deal with the hump in the floor. And I'm like, I, I don't know if you guys understand, but it means the house isn't going anywhere. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. it's done. It's unsettling. This is great. So it was really interesting. We had a lot of people. It was a lot of people from out of state. As I've kind of started to do a little research and looking up, moving has been kind of a big thing that's been happening, surprisingly, during COVID. More people are trying to get out of the bigger cities, get to areas that have... Um, more space. And I think the particular family that bought our place, I think they were local um, Yinsers, you know, Pittsburgher. Um, they were Yinsers to begin with, or at least the husband was, I believe. And so they were coming back to their roots. Um, but we had a lot of people from out of town coming through and being like, oh, I just don't know if I like this place. And I'm like, eh, Pittsburgh is one of the oldest housing stocks in the country. So you're going to get an old house, whether you like it or not. <laughs> it may just not be this house. So it took a while. But once we finally got done, we were like, you know, we'll just get an apartment for now and in Portland and see how it goes. And, you know, I, I think that's the smarter move is to kind of get to know the areas long enough to find a nice place for us. Oh, for sure. We like our little apartment. We call it our shoebox. It's like less than 700 square feet, but it fits all of my Star Wars collectibles. So, hey, I'm fine with it. <laughs> <laughs> Those older houses, I've lived in a few. Uh, one at a time, by the way. <laughs> uh, I had townhouses in Old Newcastle. And same thing. The first one I bought, the floor was a little sloped. But the inspector said, it's fine. This house has been here 100 years. It's going to be here 100 more. And that's the thing with an older house. You get that charm, but you have those little things that, you know, nothing's perfect now, but it's not going anywhere. Yeah. And when we sold our house in Delaware, the first buyer that was interested wrote a letter. Actually, it was the second buyer. They're really nice and they really want it well. Once the inspection started, it went downhill. Oh, no. It was, there's a tree out front, and I think it's getting into the sewage line, and the inspector couldn't get his scope through, so he wanted it replaced. And we're like, what? Because that's <laughs> thousands of dollars. Yeah, yeah. And when they inspected it, they broke the cap on the sewage pipe and put, like, putty over it. So we were apoplectic, and we called another guy to have it checked. And he says, well, I'm going to try this other entrance into the sewage line. He goes, you're good. It was just the bend in the pipe. And we're like, err. So <laughs> we went with the first buyer who was from out of state, but close by. Mm -hmm. So they were thrilled to live in a tax-free state with lower property tax and all that stuff. So we're happy for them. And, oh, yeah. by the way, <laughs> mm -hmm. that tree died. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it died. <laughs> it died the day... Not the day, but it died when we put the house on sale. I'm like, the leaves aren't coming back. What happened? And it was a beautiful red maple. Well, when they get older, 
they start to choke themselves. The roots start to wrap around the tree. Oh, my gosh. And it decided that spring to do it. So we had to take the tree down. And you like nature. When that tree was gone, it changed everything. More sunlight. Mm -hmm. You can see the phone lines. And we're like, oh, I'm glad we're moving. I don't like it anymore. (laughs) Yep. Yep. I get that. No, we had the exact same thing. The bend in the pipe thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. That was crazy. It came down to two buyers also for us. The first set came once and we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we really, really like it. And I love my neighbor. She was basically there watching everyone to see how they thought about the house, if they would come over and talk to her because she likes to be chatty. And she's like, I kind of want to know who they are. And, you know, the people who would come over and talk to her, she'd be like, oh, this person thought this and this person said that. And they're really nice. I love her so much. She was such a good neighbor. But they were kind of taking their time figuring out whether or not they wanted the house. Around that same time, a couple who ended up buying it came one Friday. And I guess the realtor did because they were in another state came by and did, I guess, a Skype call and had them look around the house that way. The other couple came the same day and went around and looked at it again. And within, I don't even know how long, we had both offers immediately on the table. And I was like, you're kidding me. Wow. <laughs> like We'd gone, like I think, almost two months with nothing. Hmm. We had so many people show up, so many open house stuff. We'd already done like the average number of views it would take to have you know, a sale. And nobody could figure out why it wasn't selling because it was a beautiful house and there really wasn't anything wrong with it. It was just the old factor, I think. And we had a lot of people from out of town that didn't understand that if you wanted to live in this really nice area of Pittsburgh, this is the kind of houses you're going to have to have. So, yeah, it was kind of surprising. But we went with the uh, the couple we did because they were older and they had bought a house before and they seemed to know kind of what to expect. And um, it seemed more like a sure thing that it was going to go through versus the other couple who kind of had some requirements that didn't seem feasible according to our our realtor they were kind of some strange things that they wanted Mm -hmm. so it was like "Mm, i don't know and uh, we we just weren't sure that they were also very aware of the whole house buying process because their realtor wasn't very communicative with ours either so we were like "Mm, not sure if we're gonna wait that long you know yeah so but these people were amazing they were really nice we both kind of bent over backwards for each other trying to make sure it was the smoothest move possible. So I am really glad that they ended up getting the place. They were the right fit for the house. I think they seemed to really enjoy it. And now you go through all the unpacking, unpacking the pods. Because we moved into our shoebox, uh, we can't unpack the second pod. So it's just hanging out in storage because we went from a 2,500 square foot house to 700, like less than 700 square feet. That second sucker was staying in and we thought we were buying a house when we packed it. So not all the important things, but you know, some of the other stuff that we would have loved to have had is in there. We don't know where. It's packed somewhere in there. So (laughs) we were left with whatever we ended up having in this one. And it was like, well, we've got stuff to survive. It's fine. We're good. We don't really need to buy anything new. So it was just kind of an interesting mishmash of things that we basically had in the house to sort of help stage it a little. Well, with all that going on, you have a book coming out in March, seeing Rachel Carson. Now, Rachel Carson was a marine biologist who fought against the environmental crisis through her books, which ultimately led to the creation of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And one of her biggest contributions was alerting the world about the environmental impact of fertilizers and pesticides. Now, I didn't recognize the name at first, Mm -hmm. but I did recognize the name of the book, Silent Spring that she wrote in 1962. And I'd like, if I may, to share a quote from that book that tells us a pretty good bit about her. 
Oh, yes. She had written, those who contemplate the beauty of the earth find reserves of strength that will endure as long as life lasts. There is something infinitely healing in the repeated refrain of nature, the assurance that dawn comes after night and spring after winter. In nature, nothing exists alone. And I think that growing up on a Pennsylvania farm gave Rachel an appreciation of nature and wildlife. What led to your appreciation of nature and wildlife? Now, since you're moving to Maine, or you now have moved to Maine, obviously there's a connection there. You must really appreciate what she stood for. What led to your appreciation? Uh, I think it would have to be living in Germany for six years. We lived off base. Uh, my father was in the military. And he and my mom wanted to make sure that my brother and I got more of a, a real experience of living in a foreign country. And because of that, the little village we lived in had this beautiful expanse of woods and a little bit of a hill right next to it. We were in a cul-de-sac. Everywhere we walked, there were woods and trees and trails. We just kind of were allowed to roam free. <laughs> uh, my parents really didn't think about the fact, you know, there was really nothing to worry, I think, about. It was one of those kind of wonderfully carefree childhoods where my parents were like, yeah, I think my kids are probably safe here. And we were. It was all very nice and quiet in our little area. Our neighborhood was uh, half German citizens and half U.S. military folks that just managed to find their way to this village. I specifically remember one time where I was taking a trek through the woods with my friends and my brother. And we came across this little spring it had a little like faucet built into it. It was this beautiful sort of stonework. And it was allowing the water to trickle from this spring. And I just remember how magical that looked right there in that moment with the dappled light from the trees kind of making the light sort of shimmer onto this water. Mm. And I just remember feeling like it was just the most magical thing. And we'd never been able to come across it again after all those years. It was a one-time experience. But every time we went down one of these trails... We always used to say that it was just sort of enchanted or magical because it would always lead us to a new area. And I would just go walking and exploring. And I, I remember a friend and I also walked, oh, I don't know how many miles one time just because we could. And we came across the ruins of a castle just sitting in the middle of a field. Wow. And it was so beautiful. We came up. It was a tiny little two-story thing. It was total ruins. But, you know, you could hop up these stairs. And I remember getting up there at the top and you could just see this wonderful field in front of you all around you and it was just this beautiful waving grass and I just remember looking out at it and thinking everything is possible the world is perfect and beautiful and possible and for a young kid that just was really formative in that way to view nature and to be around in nature for so many years before coming back to the States that um, it just kind of really settled within me and settled in my core, I think. Would you say there's a reflection of your appreciation in your writing also? Absolutely. It helps that my wife really adores just everything outdoors as well. Like she went for a, a degree in biology and um, lived out in Hawaii and would do things like go to Costa Rica to study the birds and everything out there. And she's had a fascinating life in that sense. I hear all about these things from her and she'll drag me to the tidal pools and I'll enjoy just the just the life that's in it. Yeah, I don't know. There's just something wonderful about nature. It's so ethereal. It's hard to capture in my writing. You know, when I was writing this particular book, I wanted to do justice so much for the way she felt about nature and about the world around her. I do hope that came through. <laughs> <laughs> well, the book 
is the second in a series of graphic novels spotlighting true stories of real groundbreakers who have changed the world for the better. Being seen for who you are and who you hope to become, you know, history not only teaches about small subsets of pop the population, history generally teaches about a very small set of the population, generally white men. Mm-hmm. It's like comics now reflecting our society more than it has in the past when basically white men wrote most of the mainstream comics. So it Mm -hmm. must have been a thrill for you to work on this book from this series with this messaging, which is so much needed today, to recognize Mm -hmm. the subsets that are not being recognized, to speak about such a subject. That must have been just great. It was. My degree was actually in history. Mm -hmm. So I am always thrilled when I get to utilize my love of history to do something where I'm bringing specifically, you know, Rachel Carson's story to, you know, an audience and a younger audience who might not have really thought of, you know, researching her or knowing much about her. I think that sometimes history texts, they aim towards a more highbrow readership as though they're expecting you to gain and gather these concepts that are um, a little more, I don't know. I think you really have to either oh, think outside the box or really kind of sit there and be interested enough in the subject that you're reading about that you are willing to go along with all of these sort of rambles and things that the author and these small converging things that the author has sort of created to create the timeline of whatever historical thing you're looking at. Um, And it, it just doesn't really utilize the vernacular, I think, in enough ways where, say, a kid who might be slightly interested in something, say, I don't know, um, let's pick something broad, like the Revolutionary War, say, um, may find that some of the books are too challenging or they focus too broadly on the subject or they're just kind of not written for them. I think one of the things that comics does so well is being able to translate anything, whether it's fiction or not. And it puts that in the hands of people who may not have wanted to look it up before, read something about it before. But when you combine just the amazing harmony of pictures and words and you find a way to move people uh, with that work, it's truly something spectacular that you can sort of enrich someone else's mind just through your work, whether, like I said, whether it's fiction or not. Well, let's talk about the illustration in the book. Now, that was illustrated by Rhee Abergo, and she's illustrated Steven Universe, Heartwood, Elements Earth, and she has her BFA in drawing and painting. Did you choose the artist, or was that something Boom was involved with? No, Boom was involved with that. I have not had the pleasure of meeting Ree personally, but um, her work is just spectacular. The minute I saw it, in combination with my words, I just was floored. There's just something about it, the way that it captured just the vibe of everything that I had hoped had come through in my writing. It's just spectacular, in my opinion. What do you hope readers come away with after having read Rachel Carson? I hope that they come away with the understanding that she was a very complex person. She was such an amazing person and such a wonderful subject to write about. But I feel like she was just such a a fascinating individual who, yes, she was very famous for writing Silent Spring. But one of the things that I, I learned much about her was that she loved the ocean. It was her first love. And something that should really, I think, be paid attention to was that. I remember reading something where she would have loved to have been known for her adoration of the ocean and her bringing that to people 
at a time when scientific writing might not have been as accessible. She was a wonderfully complex woman who had the best interests, I think, of all nature, including all peoples, at heart. And it's her love of the sort of complex web of nature that caused her to champion and rail against the use of pesticides and DDT and things like that, um, and to caution the world about it. She had a brilliant mind. It's very sad that we lost her so soon because I think she would have loved to have seen how we've come along and, you know, been disappointed in other ways. But I think she would have been excited to see how far we've come along in her absence. She had that understanding of the interconnectedness of everything of nature and how each piece is important. And we're not here to conquer the earth or subjugate it. We have to work with it because we're part of it. We sometimes forget that. I think it's there for Existing us. Existing in that balance. Yeah. They build houses now that kind of fit in with the environment, which I'm really mm -hmm. impressed with. I don't see enough of that yeah, rather than just like leveling things out and making the environment fit the houses. This book within this series called Scene is really great about helping recognize these people that have been part of subsets of society or marginalized. How else besides the comic book do you think we can become more aware of marginalized and subsets of society? Oh, gosh, that's a complex question. <laughs> well, I do think allowing uh, marginalized voices to come to the table first and foremost is going to be the best way to do that. I think often it's kind of the idea of maybe white men and women who look at the idea of, oh, yes, we need marginalized creators to come to the table and then promptly tell everyone how they should do this without really consulting the marginalized creators or marginalized peoples in general. And instead, I think really what should be happening is to invite those people to the table and listen to them first and foremost, um, explicitly what they have to say. And I would say pay attention, really pay attention, listen, be open to listening, be open to hear. And I think it's so tough to even comment on that because yes, while I am, you know, a white queer woman, I suffer very few, like very few slights. I'm very privileged. So mm -hmm. it's always very difficult for me to comment on that in a way that I feel is even beginning to be reflective of what our responsibilities are as far as taking a back seat and allowing other people to have the floor. You made a very important point that ties back to nature as nature is connected together and we have to find a way to work with it. When you bring in people, have been marginalized or subsets rather than saying you fit here and do mm -hmm. this again blend work weave you know kind of work together and create something new versus saying it fits here what would you say to those who hold on to the past and believe their way of life is threatened by minorities and marginalized groups because this year has been difficult and it's been getting difficult this just didn't suddenly happen I struggle with that. Like, how do I get through to people? I mean, you can't just argue my way is the right way, even if it is, because you're not going to get anywhere. And it's mm -hmm. extremely frustrating. And we're not going to get anywhere if people are always just on two separate sides and mm -hmm. just won't listen to each other. And you're a student of history, so you understand how things can repeat themselves, that people don't Absolutely. learn from the past. How do we get through that belief that people have that their way of life is threatened and, oh, it's going to be terrible and have all these fears and phobias and how can we work together? Oh, man, I think if I had the answer for that, world peace would be accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can give you kind of a personal example. Um, my personal goal at the moment is to sort of gently talk to my parents 
and kind of understand why their fears and anxieties exist, where they come from, to really kind of get to the root of that. And I have the ability to do this because, again, I have privilege and my parents, they're the kind of white people who are like, I'm not racist and are definitely doing all the microaggressive stuff. But would they ever outrightly be totally horrendous? No. No, but they're that lovely subset of folks that would like to tell you they're perfectly fine and everything is fine, but also be completely terrified and threatened of their way of life. You know, they feel it's totally upended. So, you know, I have the ability and we have a good enough relationship that I and I have patience, which I honestly, I don't blame anyone if they don't, because it's so exhausting to sit there and try to explain to folks, you know, or try to just come to an understanding where people get what you're trying to say. But I had a conversation with my mom not too long ago where she was talking about, oh, if we have any sort of socialized anything, people will just stop working, which is uh, be lazy. And I'm like, oh, I've heard that one before. (laughs) But um, what I did was I, I gently explained to my mom, I said, you know, I said, let me put it to you this way, mom. I said, you know, during this whole pandemic, I said, lots of people have been chomping at the bit to get back to work. I mean, that's part of the reason we're in the trouble we are is people have been ready to get out and go do something else. They're tired of being cooped up. I said, take my brother, for example. He's a more of an at-risk person. He's immunocompromised. And uh, his work basically said, okay, we'll, we'll pay you. You sit at home for a little while because he can't do a lot of his work at home. And he went ooh, a couple months without doing anything. He was getting paid for it, but he was basically getting paid to sit and play video games. And he got to the point where he was like, I'm tired. I want to go back to work. Why won't they let me go back to work? And I said, you know, mom, I said, if my brother who can sometimes be kind of a a lazy bones, is dying to go back to work. Like, let's say he's the gold standard, because I'm a biased older sister. (laughs) (laughs) I said, let's say he's the gold standard. I said, because he's somebody you know. And I said, now, you know, he was getting paid, and he got to stay at home. And you know what he did? He promptly went, I want to go back to work. And I said, so really, Mom, do you really think that's going to happen? She had a thoughtful pause there. And she goes, well, she goes, I guess I didn't really think about it that way. That's a small step. Who knows if it actually is really effective. But if I talk about it again, you never know. It might. I'll sit there and I'll have full on accidental. I'll just kind of go into conversations about the minimum wage and how basically pushing marginalized communities into you know more minimum wage jobs the more jobs they have to work which means the less time they spend with their own family it's one of those things where you're exhausting a human being to death it's one of those things where somebody shouldn't have to work five or six jobs or however many just to live just to exist and so often we find that happening in marginalized communities and it's just ridiculous um it's gotten to the point where i'm like you know mom mcdonald's isn't a summer job People work there regularly and they're not paying to deal with the amount of stuff that they put up with every day. (laughs) Like Starbucks is not a summer job. You know, these aren't things where when you were younger, you could just go work there and save enough money and boom, you'd have a down payment on a house by the time you were done out of college. You know, I said, that's not how this works anymore. Life doesn't work. You know, it's not keeping up with the wages and keeping up with the cost of living. And there'll be things like that where I'll just, I'll bring those up to her every once in a while and She's gotten more and more receptive to hearing what I have to say. And by little by little, her views are kind of changing for the better. And it's taken a long time. And there's been a little bit of uncertain pushback. But if you have the patience, I think trying to understand where these people's anxieties come from 
I mean, obviously that is a huge amount of work and mm-hmm. should not be put on anybody. But, you know, as a white person, I'm like, I got nothing to lose. I'll do it because I shouldn't <laughs> expect anyone else to do it for me. Right. I'm not going to let anyone else educate my parents. So I might as well be the responsible person and do it and try to get them to understand why life isn't ending just because the world is changing and changing, hopefully, sometimes for the better. That's a great approach. I like that. People tend to get wrapped up in ideology and positions and the talking points and what they believe will happen based on theories versus Mm -hmm. thinking about the people impacted by it. There may be eventually somebody they know who's impacted by these things when they're just looking at it strictly from talking points that we hear repeated over and over and over again. So I hope things keep moving in the right direction and Mm -hmm. that next year, 2021, will be much better. (laughs) That would be very, very nice indeed. I would say that you're right. Knowing someone who is impacted specifically really does seem to change people's opinions. I would say that my parents were pretty neutral on the whole gay thing. And then Mm -hmm. when I came out to them, uh, I think they were still kind of neutral. But the more they got to know my wife, I got to the point where she's just absolutely part of the family and no one would ever say differently. And, you know, I learned that, you know, my dad was like, I will go to bat for you. I will tell, you know, any of the family members, if they have a problem with it, they can deal with it, you know? Mm. And I was like, wow, (laughs) you know, for a man that's really close to his family, that's a big deal. Yeah. You know? And I mean, I I should have known that because my dad really loves me and would do literally anything. But I'm like, that's really (laughs) cool to know that parents can change their minds on that uh, and that people can change their minds If they have someone impacted, let's be honest, I think because we as human beings are all a tiny little bit selfish because we're number one, we got to take care of ourselves. Because of that, when it happens to you or when you know someone or when you are kind of impacted because someone else is impacted, Mm -hmm. suddenly your worldview changes. And I think that's also something to be understood is that understanding that we're all just the tiniest bit selfish and you know the world sometimes if you're really selfish doesn't exist outside of your small bubble (laughs) (laughs) if you're just kind of aware of that sometimes you can utilize that to kind of push people in a direction where you're like see it's okay it'll benefit you you're good (laughs) (laughs) sorry for my ramble (laughs) no no i appreciate your thoughts greatly What I also would like you to share, too, is about your other work. You've done other books, Over the Garden Wall, Soulful Symphonies, and I understand you have something else in the works. Yeah. Over the Garden Wall was one of the most amazing things I've ever done, honestly, for a first published thing to be that. Oh, my gosh. I can't say good enough things about the entire team that I worked with on that. They really gave me a lot of license to just make it as creepy and cool as I wanted. And uh, every time I would put something in there, I was like, oh, they're going to tell me no. Oh, they're going to tell me this is too weird. (laughs) And they'd be like, yeah, this is great. We love it. I was like, oh, thank you, guys. (laughs) It's definitely nerve-wracking because you have two sets of editors. The comics, the Cartoon Network folks that are like, you like that. So Mm -hmm. it was just such a thrill. And I love that show so much. Yeah, that was an amazing experience. And of her own design from Mad Cave, I'm so so excited for that to come out. Jess, who I've been working with doing the illustrations or doing the, the sequential art, has just been amazing bringing these characters to life. Bree, the main character, I relate to so hard, and I hope everyone else does, as this sort of aspiring or, you know, teen that's trying so hard to do this creative writing. She has a passion for writing everything, and that's her big thing. And I I remember, and I think it's probably just coming from my my own experiences, as a teenager, it's all I wanted to do was I wanted to sit and write and create stories. 
this is to the point where my parents were like, don't you want to go out? Like at some point and I was like, yeah, well, I, I did the whole going outside in, in Germany and I, I enjoyed that and I'll go sit somewhere and write. Sure. That's fine. But, uh, I'll go sit in nature and write. That sounds good, but I'm not getting out to go play anything or anything like that. <laughs> I'll sit here with my notebook. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, even now I still, I'll still carry like a notebook and a pen, even though I have my laptop because there's nothing like it. There's nothing like the feel of pen on a notebook paper. I'm very excited about her own design. It's going to be a great book. Well, now it's time for kicking back with the creator. We're asked questions about you to learn more about you as a person. So now you have the day open, you can do anything. What would you do for recreation on that day? I would honestly probably, well, now that I'm in Maine, I'd definitely go to the ocean because that's kind of a thing we've been trying to do every day. What I really enjoy is actually getting to kick back on the couch with my wife and um, sit there and write and she'll draw and um, we'll either come up with small stories together or she'll do some of the art or we'll just sit and talk and listen to music, share music with each other. Honestly, that's where I'm most comfortable. I think an ideal day is just kind of going out to the ocean with her and sitting back on the couch, relaxing with her, doing some art and writing and having the cats jump up. And uh, that'd be it. I'd be like, this is great. (laughs) (laughs) That is really good. We're too far from the ocean, but uh, (laughs) we do like to sit down and just pour a drink and listen to music and share it. (laughs) Last night, I was playing a Beatles CD that I got and uh, Meet the Beatles I played. And it had both the stereo and the mono version on there. So I had played all the stereo and it was going to the mono. And she says, you just played that. I said, it's the mono version. And she said, you should have seen your face. You made a Muppet face. Like you were just (laughs) incensed by me even (laughs) suggesting to turn that off. (laughs) I said, you Luddite, that's a mono version. (laughs) My mom also has the Kermit face where you're just like, yeah, I love that face. I have also inherited that face. It's the best. (laughs) I totally got exactly what you meant. (laughs) Next question. What was your favorite birthday? Oh, gosh. Oh, let me think. Okay. Yeah, I would have to say it was my my 30th. Um, I'm 31. I have to say it was my 30th. We went kind of not all out. We we had kind of a little bit of a, of a shebang there, though. But we did a roaring 20s to say goodbye to my 20s birthday party. Uh, my friends came dressed up in flapper garb. And uh, I had stuff on, too. One of my friends came as a newsboy. That was pretty funny. Uh, we actually got a friend of ours to do some photography while we were there. So we had everything in, like themed bottle like uh, champagne and stuff in themed uh, glasses and um, we were also doing it because it was in October so it's kind of spooky so we were doing like a spooky 1920s seance party so we had these cookies that had Ouija planchettes on it we had this really fun like photorealistic backdrops that we tacked to the walls and stuff and it was already kind of nice looking because it was a 1920s house and my wife who did Ikebana which is the art of Japanese flower arranging for a good period of time there. She arranged this beautiful centerpiece, this gorgeous like blues and golds. And I can't even begin to describe how amazing this thing was. It was just, it was kind of an unreal party. And uh, it looks like we had just as much of a good time in the photos as we actually did. It was spectacular. Every time we would go to a bakery where we'd get all of their stuff made, get the uh, decorations, people would be like, what are you buying this for? And I'd be like, it's my 1920s spooky seance party for my birthday. And they'd be like, you got to come back and show me these pictures. I got to know what you're doing with this. I was like, yeah, sure. No problem. <laughs> that sounds but it was awesome. Totally fun. Oh my gosh. It was, it was a great time. I had a great time. 
Now we're going to go back to the preteen years. What posters and or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Let me think, because <laughs> I'm going to out myself here. I really love the Backstreet Boys, so I had all <laughs> sorts of things on that wall. Yeah, and then the big thing I had, actually, was I was a really big fan of this really obscure anime called Sakura Wars. It started out as like a, a game, like a Sega game, and then it got really popular in Japan, and they turned it into an anime. It was a big deal. I happened to find one of the DVDs for it. For some reason, they were selling it in one of the military base stores in Germany, and I was like, I'm going to watch this. I fell in love with it. So I printed all sorts of pictures from it <laughs> on our old dial-up computer and printer and just tacked them to the wall. I had a sloped ceiling. They were hanging off of this thing, like curtains, like streamer curtains. And my mom was like, you need to take some of these down. And I was like, never. <laughs> <laughs> this is my collection. <laughs> I don't know if I had anything else. That was, that was mostly it. Yeah, I didn't really, didn't really spend a lot of time decorating my my room nowadays it's full of my wife's art i have all the stuff hanging up but preteen years not so much <laughs> what kind of art does your wife make what does she specialize in well she does comics for one you know she was trained at scad so she has this beautiful piece that is my absolute favorite that we got framed because it was in an art show and it's this beautiful charcoal drawing of a woman and she's just resting her head in her hands. I don't know. There's just something stunning about it. It hung over our dining room table for a while, and uh, I've got to find a good place for it here as this focal point. But um, I love everything she does. She's great digitally, traditionally. She paints, watercolors, anything you can imagine. She splish flashes in it. And she's just, I mean, I'm biased, but she's the best artist I've ever seen. So I'm biased, though. <laughs> <laughs> now, a hypothetical situation. You're on a deserted island. You have one book to read for pleasure. So what would be that one book or a set of books, if they're related, that you're reading just to pass the time, not for survival, but just something you really want to read? It would be the Master and Commander series. Absolutely. It is the story of a captain named Jack Aubrey and uh, the adventures he has with his compatriot and uh, doctor, Stephen Maturin. And I forget how many books are in that series. It's spectacular. It's all naval seafaring stuff that took place in um, early 1800s. Patrick O'Brien had such a, an extensive knowledge of naval history, British naval history. It's all pretty much entirely accurate. I adore it. It's just a fascinating series. Wrote it in like the 1960s. There is one book where one of the most fascinating things is they're trying to get over a border. I forget which country border, but they're... Uh, I forget what Jack is in trouble for. And um, he's in a bear suit. And they play this completely straight. He's stuffed into a, I believe, a taxidermied bear. <laughs> They're traveling, trying, and I don't know why this guy decided to put that in there. But they play it completely straight. And by the time you get to that point in this book, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but it is, it is a really really good series of books i forget how many hundreds of pages it is per book but it is oh my gosh it's so good i love each and every one of them next question what is your beverage of choice when you're just relaxing san pellegrino lemonada finish this phrase i took a risk when Ooh, that's tough i'm not really a risky person hmm let me think <laughs> gonna sound silly but i took a risk when i moved in with uh, my wife when we uh, lived in kentucky i didn't know her very well she didn't know me very well 
but we were in a one-year relationship and um, long distance, and we thought, yeah, this will be fine. And uh, I moved in. Not long after that, I looked at her, and she looked at me, and we were like, yeah, we're probably going to be together forever, aren't we? <laughs> uh, that was an insane risk, and wow. I can't believe we did it. Yeah. Although, actually, no, I take that back. The riskier thing was when I invited her to come down to Georgia, even though I only knew her online. She's like, I'm taking a trip of the East Coast. Anybody want to come meet up? And uh, I was like, yeah, come down to Georgia. It'll be great. You can stay for coffee. And then it was, well, you know, actually, it's going to be kind of late when you get here. Maybe you should just, you know, stay for dinner. And then it was, you know, I could show you around Georgia. Why don't you, why don't you stay the day? And then it was, why don't you stay a week? And she hadn't even showed up yet. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know if I was a serial killer or what. But uh, <laughs> uh, showed up and uh, I was at the Waffle House in a meeting place. That was the only meeting place in the middle of Milledgeville, Georgia at 11 o'clock at night. Because I'd just gotten off of my shift at Kroger. She pulled up in her car. And I looked over and I was like, oh, gosh, I think that's her. And I looked through the window and there was this really pretty lady in a blue leopard print dress staring at a rearview mirror putting lipstick on. And I was like, oh, no, I'm in trouble. She's cute. <laughs> <laughs> I sat back down in the booth and I was like, be cool, be cool. And she showed up and I was like, nope, I'm in trouble. That was it. She was in trouble, too, apparently. <laughs> it was meant to be. Oh, that was the riskiest thing I ever did. I'm glad I did it. Final question. What is your guilty pleasure? My guilty pleasure is collecting all sorts of Kylo Ren themed Star Wars merch. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, I just really liked him as a character. I just thought he was an interesting and complex guy. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> I have way too much merch, <laughs> way too much, way too much to the point where, where, where my wife was like, all right, but you have Kylo, but I have a bunch of Amidala stuff when I was younger. Can we just like consolidate that in a pretty big collection? I was like, yeah, you got it. So then it just kind of bloomed from there. But uh, yeah, yeah, my guilty, <laughs> my guilty pleasure is collecting Kylo Ren merch. <laughs> Very specific corner of the Star Wars universe. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, seeing Rachel Carson comes out in March 2021 through Boom. Birdie Willis, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Thanks so much. Birdie and I decided to end it here because we could go on for a while about that Kylo Ren collection. We'll save that for next time. My next interview will be with that creator who has decades of experience, has worked for both Marvel and DC as an editor and writer. That comes up in one week. That is my goal, to have that one ready to go in just a week because, well, the holidays are approaching and I do plan to make that my last podcast of the year and take a little break. I had planned to travel close by, just across the border to California, someplace nice and remote with lots of space, Death Valley. However, California is now closed due to the rising rate of infection and hospitalization in the state. So, much of the state is closed as of this recording, including Southern California, so that puts off any travel plans. So I, like most of us, will be home for the holidays. So even though you'll have a break from me, there's no break for me because I already have an interview in the can for next year and one scheduled for this week I'll be recording. So we'll be starting out 2021 strong. And once we get through this pandemic, now that we see the light is at the end of the tunnel, and it's not a train, we do have a vaccine coming out. It will be widely distributed, probably April, May time frame. We know there's an end point to this. So that gives us all some hope. So continue to social distance and wear your mask. Remain vigilant and strong. 
You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. There I post my Saturday and Sunday bronze and silver age comics from my collection. If you want to reach out to me directly, you can email me at the address creatortalks at gmail.com. That's creatortalks at gmail.com. If you haven't yet, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you already have, I thank you very much and continue to spread the word about the show. It's a big help and is greatly appreciated. That's all for now. For Creator Talks, this has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time. Thank you.